0: Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. One of the main purposes for this show is to promote freedom, to promote capitalism. And today's guest is here to talk to us all about capitalism. And I could think of perhaps nobody better to do so. He's the chairman of the board at the Ayn Rand Institute, where he served as executive director from 2000 to 2017, and he has also written several books, including Equal is Unfair and Free Market Revolution. Yaron Brook, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on.
0: So there's so many misconceptions out there about what capitalism is. the, The first thing I think we should do is tell me what is capitalism?
1: Well, capitalism is a, a system of government or, or a social system in which individuals are free, free to live their lives. Um, and what that means is it's a system of government where the sole purpose of government is the protection of individual rights, the protection of individuals' ability to live their lives based on you know, their own judgment, their own rational mind in pursuit of their own uh, values. And that requires that that the, the government um, that all property be privately owned, uh, that requires that the government uh, not never engage in uh, coercion, other in in self defense and defending individuals, uh, that requires a complete separation of state from economics, uh, that requires a pretty radical state of the world. Something we 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 don't have, and probably and, and really have never seen in the world. It's a, it's a capitalism really is a radical new uh, idea and um and but it's it's its essence is the sanctity of individual life
0: it, it's interesting because it is a new concept and it, it's interesting to me because the people who defend capitalism are often called conservatives and w- the people that call themselves conservatives I wouldn't call defenders of capitalism and if you're really defending capitalism you're actually quite radical
1: no question i mean Uh, Really, uh, those of us who defend capitalism are progressive. We believe in progress. Uh, In some ways, we're liberal because we believe in liberty, and uh, we are anything but conservative. Indeed, the opponents of capitalism in the era that was closest, where we got closest to capitalism, if you will, the 19th century, when the world was, was being freed, was being liberated where uh, people were getting richer, wealthier, living longer, gaining health. Uh, the biggest opponents of capitalism were the socialists, you'd expect that, and the conservatives. Uh, you know, the conservatives were waiting during the 19th century, uh-oh, we got these cities, people moving to cities, we're, were losing this, this wonderful traditional family-oriented little village life where people died when they were 30. Uh, and 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 nobody could read and 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 the quality of life was horrible but that's what they they were they were pining for and they still pine you know you have today in america people call themselves back porch conservatives or front porch conservatives you know they just want a relaxing simple unchallenging life just sitting on that front porch and rocking in the chair who the hell wants to live like that (laughs)
0: life
1: is too fascinating and interesting and exciting to want such a boring existence, but the conservatives, you know, they, they, they resist that. They, they resist change by the name. They're traditionalist, they're conservative. They want to conserve the past and uh, the past really is anti-capitalist. Now It might be that in the certain period in the 20th century, the past looked relatively capitalistic, but that couldn't last. And uh, conservatives, the more, The more time passes, the more statist conservatives become um, because um, they're not connected by any philosophical connection, really, to liberty and freedom and uh, and individual rights.
0: No, it sounds like the, the description you gave is what they want is security. And I've said more times than I could count. You know, I spent 25 years in prison. I was relatively secure. I wasn't free. Yeah, give me the risk. Give me freedom with the risk that comes with it any day over prison insecurity. It just seems uh, like an, an absurd. No,
1: you're on. absolutely right. You're the most secure when when uh, when uh, you know your your choices are taken away from you. Now that's not really true, right? Uh, because I'm sure you were that secure in prison, and if you live a good rational life in this world and you are free, not like you are here, but even more free. If you're really free, um, you're probably the most secure as well, really, right? Because you then control your life, and you can sure. you could choose how secure to be. And you know, if you have a government that protects individual rights, it really does protect you, right? It protects you from 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 the things that you fear most. So um, there isn't, at the end of the day, if we really think long term and deeply, there isn't a trade off between security and freedom but in a superficial way there is In In a in a shallow way there is and what they really want what they really want is that shallow sense of security but they also they want predictability they want um they want not to be challenged they want not to be challenged they don't want their values challenged they don't want their ideas challenged and they don't want their and and they don't want their life to return. But they also don't think very deeply. I mean, I did a show on um, what's his name Knowles. I, I forget his
0: name. Matt you know, Knowles this guy- is his name. Matt Knowles.
1: No, something, Matt. Anyway, he's a conservative on on uh, the Daily Wire. He said he wants social conservatism, like it, they had it in the year twelve twenty, right? That's what he wants. Right. He, but he wants the internet and he wants, sure. uh, you know, his automobile and he wants electricity and he wants all that, but he wants the social conservative as a 1220 where we burnt witches and where, where anybody who was innovative in any kind of way was killed and murdered. They think they can separate the things out. They think they can, they can keep the stuff they want and discard the stuff they don't want, but it's all based ultimately on emotions. It's all based on dogma. Uh, what, so yes, conservatives. Bottom line is, are no friends. Particularly modern conservatives are no friends of capitalism.
0: It, it's interesting the analogy you just gave, where they want to keep what they want and, and get rid of everything else. It reminds me of I watched the debate that you had. I think the guy's name was Packman, but I'm not. I'm not positive. D- David David, David Packman, Packman, yeah. yeah, and yeah. he said, "Don't tell me about how the poorest today are better off than the people were in the Roman Empire, because today we." which is a misnomer, but he says, we, you know, have far more stuff than they had back then. And to me, it's like saying, well, basically what he wasn't saying is that there's enough now to redistribute to everybody. Yep. But yep. to me, it's as if there's a golden goose and people love the golden eggs and they say, okay, we no longer need the goose. Let's kill it. Cause we don't like it. And we'll just keep the eggs and spread them around, but then you're not going to have any more eggs. And if you get rid of the capitalist system that produces the wealth so that you can redistribute it pretty soon. You're not going to have the wealth at all.
1: Well, they, they would deny that they would basically say, and this is true, right? I think, I think the clever ones want to keep the goose just alive <laughs> enough so they can lay the eggs and they can steal it. And, and of course they realize they might have to give up a few eggs because under freedom, the goose would lay a lot more eggs. <laughs> but, but so by stealing them, you know, the, 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 but they, they still want the golden goose alive. And that's why somebody like Elizabeth Warren will say, oh, no, I'm a defender of capitalism. I believe in capitalism. I just want to control it and regulate it and tax it and, and manipulate it. But they realize there's something there. And and that's why almost nobody will call themselves a communist, or nobody, almost nobody, will call themselves an out-and-out socialist. They'll call themselves a democratic socialist, and they'll think that they they want Denmark, right? And 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 Denmark taxes people very highly, just to keep them alive, just enough so that they don't leave, or they don't they don't stop laying the golden eggs, some eggs at least, and then they do massive redistribution. But Denmark's not all the way socialism. It's not all the way communism. And, and they all pretend they don't want that because they realize that they need the entrepreneurs to keep on producing. And they also think that entrepreneurship would happen it, it, even with just a little bit of freedom. Uh, they, they, you know, most, most people out there are pretty ignorant of history and pretty ignorant of... Uh, I mean, very ignorant of history. Pretty, very ignorant of history. But also ignorant of how other political systems and how other cultures have evolved and, 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 and
0: produced. So you just mentioned history, which brings me to my next question. Now, I know pure capitalism has never existed, but people, in order to survive, have always done some measure of producing and trading. When do we see the emergence of the closest that we've come to capitalism and you know where the freest markets were? When and where did that happen? Well, again, I, I don't think capitalism is markets, right? Markets are one
1: aspect of capitalism. Okay. Capitalism is the protection of individual rights. And you don't really get that. You don't get it until there's an explicit recognition of, of rights, that rights exist, that there is such a thing as rights. And the first recognition of that really comes about probably in the works of John Locke, maybe a little before that, and some of the, the the thinkers and philosophers coming out of um, the Netherlands, And, and, um, and then, you know, so then there's a recognition, but it isn't manifest itself politically, really, the first manifestation politically of the concept of individual rights is in in the Declaration of Independence of the United States. So the closest we've ever come to capitalism fully, you know, fully implemented uh, was in the intense... Of of the founders. Now they didn't live up to that intention. The primary the primary deficit there was slavery, but that was what the documents laid out. They laid out the principles of capitalism. They laid out a capitalist system, and then once it gets laid out in the U.S., you get some of those elements picked up in other places around the world, primarily in Western Europe, primarily in the, in England, uh, to some extent in some of the other some some extents more or less in other countries, but really. Once you get rid of free of slavery in the United States, I'd say, um, you know, the the most the closest we've come to capitalism is probably post Civil War, um, you know, pre antitrust laws or pre Woodrow Wilson, somewhere in that period. And in the twentieth century, the country that comes closest is probably Hong Kong, where there is definitely protection of individual rights, uh, protection against violence and theft, but also uh, you know, no, no government regulations, no government controls, protection of, of, of free speech. You can't vote in Hong Kong. Um, uh, but if all the rights, you know, this a whole topic, but if all the rights, I think voting is, is, is probably not at the top of the, uh, of the, of the list. It's a I derivative rights. It's a derivative the, the primary rights, uh, of property and, and liberty, which is free speech, which includes free speech. Those are the primary rights. Um, and those are protected in hong kong and protected in the united states uh, during these periods so that's when we come closest to it uh, as as political systems all, all encompassing and the consequence of once you protect people's property rights uh, is markets is um, now we've always had markets but markets have always been constrained and limited and innovation has been constrained and limited entrepreneurship has been constrained and limited to what's acceptable within a particular society to what the authorities allow and permit. Capitalism is a permissionless society. Capitalism, you don't have to ask for permission. You do. And you only really get a permissionless society in that sense in the U.S. post-founding in the U.K., late 18th century, early 20th century, and then sprinkled here and there throughout Europe and then places like Hong Kong.
0: One of the most powerful illustrations of the wealth producing effect of capitalism i've ever seen you had in your book free market capitalism and you had a graph and it showed gdp growth Uh, i think you know the, the entire history of the world it you had a flat line basically and then with the advent of the free markets as hampered as they may have been but they were freer the gdp growth just skyrockets i yep. mean it goes for it's like the the hockey stick that we've heard so much about it it's just an incredible thing but beyond the gdp i mean what was the effect of these relatively free markets in terms of poverty standard of living life expectancy etc
1: yeah i mean the challenge with the gdp is it dramatically underestimates how big the advance was. Because you you don't get in GDP as life expectancy, which more than doubles, right? At the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, life expectancy in the most advanced places on the planet is 39. Um, And uh, 50% of children die before the age of 10. Uh, Women die at childbirth is very, very prevalent. Uh, And suddenly within 100 years, most of that disappears, life expectancy is doubled. And then another 100 years, we now live into our eighties pretty comfortably and, and arguably without all the regulations we have today, I think many people could, most of us could live well into our hundreds uh, without all the constraints placed upon us. Uh, But daddy doesn't even really capture it. Uh, How much value do you put on running water, Mm -hmm. right? On, on faucets, on toilets. Um, Now the Romans had running water to some extent, at least the wealthy Romans had it. But then running water, uh, pipes, and faucets disappeared for a thousand years, more than a thousand years, 1,500 years. So, how much do you value the fact that you go to tap open and drink the water out of a tap, uh, wash your hands with soap, have a shower every day? That's un- unprecedented in human history, yeah. the idea of washing yourself. Um, how valuable uh, is it to have toilets, flushing toilets? I mean, that's huge. In terms of quality of life and standard of living, that's a big step forward. Hundred years ago, even a hundred years ago, most Americans didn't have flushing toilets. Right, you still had a pit in the ground, and with with all that that entails, and and uh, the 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 smell, the, everything that that that, that entails. Um, And and then go on from there. Electricity, how valuable is electricity? Now notice that none of this is captured in the GDP numbers. Yeah. Uh, There's no measure of water, right? In GDP captures how much you spend on your water bill, but doesn't capture the value to you of water, which is massive. Same with electricity, same with computers, cameras, iPhones. I mean, GDP captures the fact that you spend a thousand dollars on the iPhone. But the iPhone, in terms of quality of life, standard of living, is far, far exceeds the $1,000 that you spend on it in terms of the values that it provides to you. Uh, That's why you're willing to give, one of the reasons you're willing to give up $1,000. So if you actually calculated what some economists call consumer surplus, the actual value to us of all the stuff that's been created in a semi-free society, um, we are much wealthier than the GDP graph shows because, because of everything that's being produced and all the value that we capture uh, from that uh, that production. So, yeah, it's uh, it's thousands of times greater in terms of standard of living, quality of life, uh, in terms of uh, the the time we have. I mean, simple things that people don't realize, right? Nobody went on vacations 100 years ago. Certainly not 150 years ago. There's no such thing as vacation. You worked. <laughs> You know, and and it wasn't even a five-day work day. You worked six, seven days. You worked twelve-hour days. We work so many fewer hours today. We go on vacations, like restaurants. The first restaurants ever was, I think, in Paris in 17 something. That's pretty late already. In the beginning of the industrial revolution, and restaurants don't take off until the 20th century. And and going out to eat and going out to eat maybe every night or every every week that's unheard of i mean how how rich are we we're unbelievably rich and having celebrity chefs so having not <laughs> just going out to eat but eating good food and quality food and delicious food uh it's just our standard of living is so high and there's no way for us to fully i mean for most people there's just no way f- to fully appreciate it unless you really study history and you think about you actually internalize thinking about what was life like without all this? I mean, maybe being in prison gives you a little bit of a context, right? In terms of how great life is when you're not, right? What options you have, what choices you have, what you can do in your life on a day-to-day basis because because you don't have that in prison. But imagine all of humanity being in prison in a sense. Uh, and, and it's more than that. So uh, 200 years ago, 250 years ago, You didn't choose who you married. Your family got together with another family and they, 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 they make, made a contract. Um, You didn't choose what work to go into, right? You went into the uh, profession that your father was in, right? You joined his guild. That was it. And if you're a woman, you certainly didn't choose your profession. You didn't have one. You were going to be home. And that was it. I mean, it's really, really rare in human history that women did more then take care of men and take care of the household. I and mean, one of the great innovations of the 20th century is that women can go out and work and they can <laughs> make their own living and have choices and, and, and do the stuff that they want to do. So, so, you know, in every respect, our lives were constrained and limited to very, very few things that we had control over before the beginnings of capitalism. And again, we don't have an appreciation for that. So how much does that contribute to our standard of living and quality of life? The fact that you can choose what profession. You can change professions midstream. You can have five professions. Careers, nobody limits you. Or romantic love. How valuable is romantic love to human human life? But romantic love is a modern concept. It didn't really exist back then because you couldn't do anything with it. Um, And you could go over value after value after value that human beings have and see how much better off we are as a consequence of freedom uh, versus before, that to be a conservative is a betrayal of human life. Uh, if if you want to, particularly if you want to conserve things the way they were before, uh, you know, before 1776 or before whatever date we want to pick. It's just astounding the differences and how much we take it all for granted.
0: So you d- this define capitalism as the system that upholds rights. So now uh, that implies the, the question, what is the proper theory of rights? Because people throw around rights all the time. You have a right to health care, a right to housing, a right to this, a right to that. Now, I believe, and I think it's been clearly demonstrated that Ayn Rand has, a, has developed or elucidated a proper theory of rights. Can you tell us a little about that?
1: Yes, I mean, Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand defines rights very clearly and rights are a um, you know essential concept in, in her philosophy. Rights are a concept that bridges morality and politics. Rights are fundamentally a moral concept, not a political one, but they are a bridging concept between morality and politics. And this is her great innovation, and this is what many of uh, many people don't really get particularly the, the libertarians out there, don't really get, is that you can't have the concept of individual rights. It doesn't mean anything, uh, and it doesn't relate to anything. You certainly can't defend it philosophically unless you have a specific view of, of morality. Um, and you can't have a specific view of morality unless you have a specific view of human nature and of, of epistemology. You need philosophy, an entire philosophy, Um philosophy, uh, in order to understand the concept of individual rights, to defend it, and to articulate it, and to and 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 really to understand it fully. So, uh, you know, why is this? Well, individual rights protect the individual's mind in order to, to to his ability to use his mind in order to live, to live for his own sake, for 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 the sake of the pursuit of his own values, not somebody else's values, not the government's values, not the, the majority's values, not the the tribe's values, but his values. Now that has, you have to you have to uh, uh, think about that as being legitimate, right? me using my mind. ooh, wait a second, I have a mind. That's cool. Um, my mind's efficacious. Hmm. Some philosophers don't think so. Plato didn't think so. He thought I was just living in a cave and seeing shadows and never really interacted with real reality. And, and and the Catholic Church certainly doesn't think I should have. I have a mind that I can use in order to discover real facts about the world and and guide my life based on it. No, I have to read ancient books and listen to prophets and and do what the Pope tells me. That's 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 what I have a mind for is to listen and obey. So um, the very fact that we are rational animals, the very fact that reason is efficacious, are deeply metaphysical and epistemological statements that you have to be able to defend in order to defend rights. Because if you don't have a mind, if by nature you're just an obeying entity, an entity that just obeys, or as some would have it, you're just a feeling entity. And, and all that matters is how you feel. And you can do whatever the hell you want, just guided by feelings, then, you know, it's unclear you should have rights. It's not clear that we want to trust your judgment, or you should trust your judgment, right? You have to have a clear view that judgment matters. Um, So rights are the thing that in a social context facilitate you using your mind. But the fact that your mind is efficacious has to be established philosophically, in reality and philosophically. And then use your mind for what? Because it's your mind well, that already sounds a little selfish because your mind, why not their minds? Why not somebody else's mind? Why, why are you just listening to you? Um, and then in pursuit of whose values, your values, well, that's certainly selfish. Um, wait a minute. Is self-interest okay? Is it okay to pursue your own values? Is it okay to, to to guide your life by your own mind? Well, but that's ethics, right? That's a whole theory of ethics. If you're an altruist and you believe that the purpose of life is other people's well-being well then why would I pursue my values shouldn't I be listening to other people and pursuing their values they need rights in order to do that maybe the government is the best instrument to convey to me what other people need so that I can sacrifice for them uh, maybe maybe the group can do that somehow for me maybe uh, there's a shortcut uh, if, if you believe that the proletarian or what's important in life well, the proletarian needs to tell me what, I, how, where can I sacrifice? Just show, point to me what, what the sacrifice is. So, you know, collectivism, altruism, un- various forms of unreason from faith to emotionalism, all of them basically undermine rights. There is no rights if you accept those theories. There, there is no purposeful rights, rights un- unnecessary uh, because human beings are not the kind of being that even John Locke, never mind I Rand thought they were so for Rand writes a recognition that individual human beings have a moral right to pursue their own happiness and to they can only do so by using their reason and that the enemy of reason is force is coercion so that when individuals enter into a social environment where there are other people and and really were born into such an environment the concern is, well, what about other people trying to force me, coerce me to do things I don't want, taking my stuff, sticking a gun to my head? And we need we need a, a an agreement that you can't do that, and that we need an agreement that recognizes that each one of us must live by his own judgment in pursuit of his own values. And therefore we can't coerce, force our own values onto somebody else, our own judgment, our own minds onto somebody else. And, you know, that agreement, that agreement basically is, uh we establish a government in order to, to do that. We establish a government in order to um, basically have the monopoly over the use of force in order to preserve that liberty, that freedom that we have. Uh, and, and, it's it's a unique institution. It's it's a one of a kind, uh, but it's an institution that that's its sole responsibility. And mm-hmm. so you can't have a right to somebody else's stuff, because that legitimizes coercion by its 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 very essence. It means that you can go take that stuff, or so, or you can hire somebody to take that stuff. Hire the government to go take your stuff to give it to you. That can't be right if rights are about your own freedom, your own liberty, his own freedom, his own liberty. How can I take his stuff if he's free, if he has liberty, if he has rights? So you can never have a right to stuff. I have a right to healthcare. My right to healthcare means that I have a right to go out there and uh, choose a doctor. And if he's willing, if I can negotiate the right fare with him, the right uh, payment. Um, that we can transact and I can get the treatment that the two of us agree upon. And the FDA and the, I don't know, thousand other government regulatory agencies have no business interfering in the agreement I made with my doctor or my hospital or my whatever. And, and that's the sense in which I have a right to healthcare. And that's the sense in which socialized medicine and government intervention in healthcare and Medicare and Medicaid and everything else is an interference and a negation of my right to health care
0: I love Rand's theory of rights because she ties it to reality it, it goes to morality and her theory of morality is clearly in my view proven And a, a lot of times when political theorists are making their arguments they make moral arguments in midstream what I mean is they just assume that their view of morality is correct there's no justification for it I watched this morning, you had a debate at Yale about the fairness of equality and yep. the, your, your opponent was saying, well, it's, you know, we have moral implications to this moral implications to that. And people do that frequently. A few months ago, I interviewed the editor from mother Jones, uh, Michael mechanic, and we were talking about inherited wealth. And finally I asked him, I said, well, you're, you're making a moral argument, Correct. And he said, yes. I said, okay, well, please tell me by what standard of morality you're making this judgment. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Oh, yeah. And he said, well, I, you know, that's what I like. And I said, well, if you're going to talk about using force, I'm going to need a hell of a lot more than Michael Mechanic happens to like something. He, he, you know, but a lot of people do that. So there's they been. Also
1: assume, they also assume we all share the same moral code because there's only one moral code out there in the world. It's it's the moral code kind of uh uh instituted by Christianity. It was instituted before that, but Christianity really picked it up and and wow. made it. And that is the moral code of altruism. And nobody, I mean, there's a handful of people in all of history who've been willing to challenge that. I don't know, uh, uh Ayn Rand and Nietzsche to some extent, although he doesn't propose an alternative, and and maybe Spinoza. But but other than that, there's just no nobody has ever said wait a minute why should i sacrifice for other people why is the standard society why is the standard the collective why is the standard the others and so everybody assumes that we've all in on we're all in this scam we all get it we all know understand what morality is nobody can challenge it because nobody ever has challenged it so who are you to challenge it and that's why I looked at you funny because nobody ever questions when i say morality i know exactly what meant by that in the world out there it, it means, okay, who, who do I sacrifice to? Who's, who am I supposed to give up my values for? Uh, that's the whole purpose for them of morality. And Ayn Rand just flips that on them, completely changes the very na- the, the very way in which we think about morality.
0: So there's been other, obviously, advocates for capitalism other than Ayn Rand. There was Adam Smith in more more modern times. There was Ludwig von Mises and Milton Friedman. Why is Rand's advocacy of capitalism superior to theirs?
1: Well, I mean, you have to separate them somewhat. I mean, Adam Smith is a moral philosopher and, and also an economist who defends capitalism. But he very much defends capitalism from the perspective of its social utility. He, he's he's very um, he does not want to embrace kind of the the egoistic motivation of let's say the baker for breaking the bread. Even though he recognizes that ultimately what motivates an entrepreneur and what motivates a consumer is their own well being, he does not embrace that morally. He rejects the idea of that being moral, and he says, "Look." We know self-interest is a vice, but if you add these vices up, the baker's vice, the consumer's vice, the entrepreneur's vice in starting their business and pursuing their own self-interest, somehow society's better off. Call it the invisible hand. It, 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 It somehow produces an outcome that is good for quote society. Well, that is so full of holes. The state has run all over that one, right? I mean, how can how can how can a bunch of vices produce a virtue? If you add up vices, don't you get a vice, a bigger vice? Uh, and uh, you know what is this good for society? How do we measure? How can we tell? Who gets to decide? Uh, okay, maybe some freedom is good for society, but complete freedom, even Adam Smith, after all, wanted there to be a central bank and wanted certain regulations. We can't we can't have complete laissez-faire. Because there's this social utility standard that can be, is completely subjective. There's no objective way to determine what social utility actually means. We don't walk around with utility functions that I had, and I can say, okay, if I move that, then the utility moves that way, and I can add them all up. It just it doesn't exist. And that's the problem with most defenses of capitalism that are ultimately done by economists. They're almost always utilitarian. And it almost always require some hand-waving, right? It's good for society. Everybody's better off. Life is better, you know, stuff like that. And it's true, life is better. But is it right? Is it good? Is it moral? Is it just, right? They can't answer that question. Is it virtuous? They can't answer that question. And is everybody better? Well, probably not. Maybe the maybe some people are worse off, right? I like to think that the wife beating drunk is worse off under capitalism than they are under welfare state, right? Under welfare state, the state keeps them around so they can beat up their wife. In capitalism, nobody will give them uh, a charity, and they, you know, uh, they, they either change their ways or they die at the side of the street, right? They, so be it, but so, but they have to insist everybody's better off because they can't make moral judgments, right? Because there is no morality or they or they don't want to touch morality or the white beating drunk is a victim really, right? Of his circumstances, and we should really feel sorry for him. So it, it, there's no way out for them. And uh, all the economic arguments, even the best, Von Mises I think has the best, right? Um, ultimately uh, fall in deaf ears because people, want moral arguments they want to know that capitalism is not just good somehow materially but they want to know or they want to have a sense that capitalism is also just and right and as long as the morality is an altruistic morality uh, morality of collectivism it doesn't add up to them right capitalism is about individualism capitalism is about people pursuing their own values pursuing their own happiness pursuing their own values which means their own businesses, their own ideas. Yeah, maybe that somehow increases GDP, but that sounds really selfish to me, and I don't trust selfish people, and therefore capitalism is not to be trusted. And what about the poor? Don't forget, what about the poor?
0: What about them? That's true. So outside of objectivism, who do you think has made the best pro-capitalism argument? I mean, you mentioned von Mises in the economic realm. I would agree, by the way. But out... But, it, did did von Mises make the best case outside of objectivism, or is there somebody else?
1: No, I think I think Mises makes the best case, certainly from an economic perspective. But 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 he has a he has a certain understanding and 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 respect and value for freedom for liberty. Uh, you know, there are other thinkers throughout the ages that have contributed um, to our understanding of capitalism uh, as a both a political system and economic system going back to, to, to John Locke and, and through the ages who have emphasized the, the value of individual rights and then the value of, they didn't have a complete, the value of, of economic liberty. They didn't have a complete understanding of capitalism or a complete defense of capitalism. But people like Bastiat certainly uh, have done a lot to promote the ideas of liberty and of ideas of freedom in the economic realm, but also in the personal realm. Uh, but there's, there's really, there are very few people today who um, actually make the argument for capitalism as a, as a whole system? Um, you know, so many, so many libertarians uh, uh, revert to uh, anarchy in order to defend markets. They think they have to be anarchists in order to defend liberty and freedom. And as a consequence, I think they completely undermine the defense of liberty and freedom. Uh, and uh, and and so many of the defenders of capitalism defended on kind of subjectivist grounds. Not subjectivism as Mises talked about in economic transaction, but subjectivism, morally subjectivism, the way we want to live our lives, subjectivism, political values, subjectivism all over the place, um, and um, moral subjectivism in so I, I, So I don't think they are very good defenders of capitalism today. And then you see the conservatives who undermine it, or, or Nikki Haley, who's running for president wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, defending capitalism. But it's filled with uncapitalist kind of things uh, and and filled with statist uh, statements and filled with the collectivism that undermines capitalism. Same thing is true of Hayek, unfortunately. Hayek, who everybody thinks is, you know, within the free market world is treated as a god, is very mixed. And Ayn Rand was very critical of Hayek uh, because of his... Compromises with, with statism, and because of the of the um uh you know the 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 implicit collectivism that some of his ideas had and his unwillingness to be you know consistent and uncompromising. The same with Milton Friedman. You know, Mises is the great virtue of Mises is he was not, he was consistent, he was uncompromising, and, and he was an anarchist, in spite of people. Uh, people today using his name to to, to yeah. sell anarchist ideas.
0: In my view, people for, will tell me that I need to support conservatives because they're the lesser of two evil, but some even go so far as to say that they're pro-capitalist. Uh, I've had people tell me, well, Donald Trump is like an Ayn Rand hero. I mean, that is just so absurd to me. And I actually think that the conservatives, when it comes to capitalism, are worse than liberals for the very reason that if if I'm somebody that's coming up and I don't know anything about politics and I'm hearing that conservatives are the ones for capitalism, then I hear Donald Trump out there talking about immigration restrictions and trade restrictions and he's going to you know threaten this company and that company and we got to keep the social safety net and all that thing. Then that to me, I mean, that's just socialism light, right? In in your view, am I wrong? Are conser- are or are conservatives really the bigger threat?
1: I mean, I think the conservatives are the bigger threat. I think they do us more harm, right? The left the is the left. We know what they stand for, we know exactly what they are. The conservatives pretend to be pro-capitalist. They use the terminology, they use those names. And if I if I were young today and hadn't read Ayn Rand and and looked at the conservatives and they're pro-capitalist and they will say anti-abortion and they're obsessed with you know homosexuality and trans issues and yeah. and 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 they're obsessed with all these social things. And I, I it wouldn't be crazy for me to lump that in with capitalism and and then of course, the, the capitalism is filled with uh, bringing you know uh, JD Vance is now um, sponsoring a lot of bills with Elizabeth Warren. About uh, penalizing businesses left and right, and encouraging, in a sense, encouraging cronyism, and I would say this is so. This is capitalism. It's cronyism, and it's regulations, and it's statism, and it's hatred of the individual in his personal life, hatred of the individual's decision making in their personal life. I hate. I would hate conservatism, and I would hate capitalism as a consequence because I would lump it all together. At least the left says, look, we're not, we hate capitalism. We think capitalism is wrong. Okay, what do they hate exactly? Let me study what capitalism is about. Maybe then I'd have a chance of discovering an alternative. Conservatives muddy the waters in a way that makes them more dangerous. And they also have, you know, one of their gimmicks is, and one of the things that rallies people around them is they also are very good at wrapping themselves around the flag and and making themselves Americans, even though they have no concept of what America stands for and what the founders really meant. They wrap themselves in a flag and, again, make themselves appealing, I think, to people who then get bamboozled by the rest of their agenda. So, yes, I think conservatism today is a mess. I don't think it stands for anything. I mean, Ayn Rand in 19 – when was this video made? I think maybe 70, 71, 72, maybe maybe as early as 68 – she she writes this article conservatism an obituary for an idea or or does a video a uh, 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 talk on it yeah I mean she thought conservatism was dead then and yeah. when you look at conservatives today as compared to then like they were unbelievably sane back then <laughs> they were you know they were they were fantastic I would take any one of those conservatives over today's conservatives in a heartbeat so I don't know what you would think I mean I'm I, there's a sense in which I'm glad she's not alive to see. How bad the right has turned out. I think. I mean, people tell me that, that Ayn Rand would have loved, Ayn, would have led Donald Trump. I think she. I, I can't even imagine the fury she would have had at a Donald Trump-like character, and 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 him. Given the reverence she had with the President of the United States and how important she thought that role was, the way she would look at a Donald Trump. I. 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 I as much as I despise him, and as much as a lot of people don't like him, I think that's nothing as much as Ayn Rand would have despised him.
0: I think you're right. I mean, she didn't vote for Reagan and when it comes to these ideas, Reagan is far superior to Trump.
1: Yes. so I I mean, Reagan has his flaws, particularly religion, but he, he, he is better than any Republican, you know, in, in, in politics today by far. And, um, and yeah, uh, if I didn't vote for Reagan, there's no way
0: she votes for, a, uh, for Donald Trump. No. Well, before I let you go, I got to ask you, what are, your, what, what are your thoughts on the future? Are you optimistic? Can we ever get to a capitalist society, if not an objectivist society? Could we at least establish some semblance of what this country was intended to be?
1: Well, I don't think you get one without the other. So I, I don't enough. think you get capitalism without objectivism. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, at least a significant influence of objectivism. It's not the case that everybody has to be an objectivist, but it certainly has to be a, the, the dominant intellectual movement in the culture. That's the only way you're actually going to get full-fledged capitalism. Uh, can we ever have that? Sure. Um, as long as you're not putting me down on a date. Um, next we, we Tuesday three o'clock, three o'clock on Tuesday. I'm look i'm'm I'm, I'm it depends on the day you catch me generally. I'm pretty pessimistic about the world um these days. I, I I don't see any way anything positive happens in the next decade or so. It's just people are so, I mean, it, it seems to me right now that people are so mindless. People are so unthinking and and much more tribal than they used to be, at least in my lifetime. It seems like we're at peak tribalism right now and peak mindlessness right now, and and this can't end well. I mean, this has to result in negative consequences. There's just there's just no way around that. So so I don't see how the next ten years don't go really badly. But once you go out twenty years, who knows? Things can turn around. We know human beings are capable of thinking. We know human beings are capable of of, uh, of doing good and, and producing and, and being responsible. We know all that is possible. Uh, and it is ultimately an issue of free will to get people to reverse and and, and go in the right direction. So I do think it's uh, it's possible, but it's a long-term project. you know it's it's uh, 20 years before we see a, a improvement, maybe 50 to 100 years before we actually see a full-fledged capitalist uh, society
0: okay is there anything i forgot to ask you or or that i i didn't let you get in because it's an important topic i want to make sure we cover it adequately
1: well i mean yeah there's a million questions that can be asked (laughs) so i i I have you know nothing's gonna pop into my mind right (laughs) now i would encourage people to um uh, you know, to go subscribe to my channel on, on YouTube, I guess, uh, the Iran Book Show. I,
0: I would recommend it as well. And uh, just for the audience to know, I've recently published my book, View from a Cage, oh, My cool. Transformation from Convict to Crusader for Liberty. It's available in ebook in a week or so. It'll be available in print. I'm going to attach a link so anybody that wants to can buy it. If you like this show, you'll love the book. For now, this is The Rational Egoist. I'm Michael Leibowitz signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe.